Greetings. One must not get one's knickers in a twist. More people should know about Bess. The future was certainly female in Elizabethan England. Rising from a modest background to become a friend and later rival of Elizabeth I, Bess became one of the richest women of her time. She was also a tireless and ambitious builder whose houses symbolised her rise to wealth and power. Some still exist to this very day. Bess outlived four husbands, adding to her funds as she went along. Born in 1527, we find ourselves firmly in the Tudor era of Britain. Bess was born into a family of respectable but impoverished Derbyshire landowners. They owned land in and around Hardwick and a modest manor house on the site of Hardwick Old Hall. Bess left home at the age of 12 to serve at the nearby Cordor Castle, and at the age of 15, she became married to Robert Barlow, heir to a neighbouring gentry family. He was only 13 and died the following year. The teenage Bess moved on to become lady-in-waiting to Frances Grey, mother of Lady Jane Grey, which brought her into the top equals of society. While serving there, she met and married the twice-widowed Sir William Cavendish, Twenty years older than Bess, he had immersed a fortune under the Tudors, and in 1549 the couple were able, on Bess's advice, to buy Chatsworth Estate in Derbyshire. The marriage was happy and resulted in eight children, but in 1557 Bess, still only 30, was widowed again. Faced with Cavendish's debts, she soon remarried. Her third husband was the elderly and rich William St. Lowy, the captain of Elizabeth I's guard. He died in 1565, leaving most of his estate to Bess. By now, wealthy enough to live independently, Bess nevertheless chose to marry again. Husband number four was George Talbot, 6th Earl of Shrewsbury, and one of the richest, most powerful men in the country. Marianne so young now seems alien to us, with 21st century eyes. However, life expectancy was so much shorter back then, it's hard to comprehend that reaching 40 years old was something of a triumph. This is where it all gets a little bit complicated. When Bess was just about to become the wife of the Earl of Shrewsbury, Bess further cemented the union between the two families by arranging the marriage of her two children, by William Cavendish to two of Shrewsbury's offsprings, including his heir. The marriage of the four children took place in February 1568, just before Bess and Shrewsbury themselves tied the knot. Bess also ensured 
that Chatsworth and some other of her estates would remain under her direct control. But the marriage soon ran into trouble. One source of strain was created in 1568. Queen Elizabeth made Shrewsbury the custodian of Mary Queen of Scots after her forced abdication. Outwardly prestigious, this task was horrendously expensive and was to continue for 15 years. Mary was shuttled between Shrewsbury's many houses, a drain on his and Bess's resources and patience. Shrewsbury was also enraged when Bess damaged relationships with the Queen by secretly engineering a marriage between her own daughter Elizabeth and Charles Stuart, whose heirs had a claim to the English throne. He also resented the time and money Bess was devoting to remodelling Chatsworth on a palatial scale. The couple spent increasing amounts of time apart, and in 1584 the marriage broke down. Despite Elizabeth I's personal efforts to reconcile the warring pair, Bess fled Chatsworth under threat of attack from her husband's men and retreated to Hardwick in 1583. Bess had brought her old family home there from the estate of her brother, James, who had died heavily in debt. As Shrewsbury continued to dispute Bess's ownership of Chatsworth, Bess instead decided to focus her energies on a property that was undeniably hers. Her first building project at Hardwick was to enlarge and remodel the medieval manor into the house we know today as Hardwick Old Hall. Between 1585 and 1590, the house was transformed out of all recognition on a grand and lavish scale, embracing the latest architectural fashions. The hall provided a comfortable home for Bess, her favourite son William and his family. On the 18th of November 1590, when the old hall was still incomplete, Shrewsbury died, leaving Bess with an even larger income than she already had. A widow for the fourth time and last time, Bess was now in her early 60s, staggeringly rich and with two large building projects already behind her. She still had an insanable enthusiasm for building. Now she had the means to start a new project, and this time one that she could begin from scratch, not compromised by the need to extend an existing home. The temptation provided irresistible. Almost immediately, Bess began planning an even grander house at Hardwick, just yards away from the unfinished old hall. Completed in 1599, the new hall was an extraordinary architectural achievement and one of the great houses of the Elizabethan age. Like many other high-status Elizabethan houses, it had huge windows, giving rise to the saying, Hardwick Hall, more glass than walls. It also developed some of the features first seen in Hardwick Old Hall, most notably a great hall. Two storeys high, running through the centre of the house, rather than one supplanting the other. The two houses were designed to complete each other. The old hall was still being worked on, while the new one was being built, and after Beth and her family moved across to the new house, it provided useful to have extra accommodation for guests and servants. Bess's last years were spent in building and furnishing Hardwick, and another house nearby, Old Coats. Intended for her son William and his family, though no trace of it survives today. 
She died in 1608, aged over 80, leaving William most of her great estates, including the two Hardwick Halls. Having risen through the Elizabethan society to become the second most important woman in England after the Queen, Bess of Hardwick used her fortunes she had amassed to indulge the passion for building that had defined her life and ensured her legacy. Her houses displayed her taste and wealth. Nowhere are her achievements more clearly proclaimed than at Hardwick, where all the house's towers are topped by her initials. I have been to both halls. One is now managed by English Heritage and the other managed by National Trust. The old hall is more or less a ruin now. When I visited a few years ago, I remember the windows being ginormous. I also remember the twisted wood that had warped over time to give the floors a characteristic uneven surface. The scent of old properties can really take you back to a time of yesteryear. That slightly musty smell that most houses of this age have is just the sort of ambience that immerses a history lover like myself into a period of time. The oak panelling, hard stone floors, oak staircase, large fireplaces and tapestries galore are a staple of most large country houses. But this was one of the first to have been fully designed like this. Most other manor houses would follow suit for hundreds of years. Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire is considered one of the country's best preserved Elizabethan houses, but our research has shown that it is more than just a time capsule. On closer inspection, Hardwick's lavish art and furnishings reveal the daring and intelligence of a remarkable woman, and they also give us valuable insights into how Elizabethans expressed themselves. Hardwick Hall was built by Bess of Hardwick, who rose from a humble background to become a wealthy noble with significant land holdings and business interests. My recent work has looked at her material culture, the embroidery, furnishings and ornaments with which she surrounded herself. Bess had a pronounced interest in needlework, and here at Hardwick it is full of mischievous, politically charged and sometimes even subversive messages. Stag motifs around the house are a Cavendish motto, but also reference the Greek myth of Actaeon, whose tale of a vengeful virgin goddess would have resonated powerfully in Queen Elizabeth's England. This hanging casts Bess as the mythical figure Penelope. She is the wife of Odysseus, who managed her household alone during the Trojan War and used a needlework trick to keep male suitors at bay. It sends a clear message about Bess's own independence and resourcefulness. Elsewhere, images of Muhammad, carpets of Persia and images of exotic animals take us beyond Bess herself, revealing a household that was global in its outlook and connections. Here at Hardwick, Bess is not just surrounding herself with beautiful things. She is using material culture to manage her public image and broadcast her ideas and allegiances, primarily to the Queen. These details are fascinating for their own sake and for what they reveal about a unique historical figure, but the real benefit of this research is opening up a new approach to Bess's era. By looking closely at the objects she bought, commissioned and made, we can see how material culture helped shape and influence Elizabethan society. Ultimately, that insight can help to shape and influence the way we study and teach the past.
Remains in captivity.